Well, Dr. Van Hayek, it's a pleasure to see you after years of reading you and indeed listening to you. I was one of the auditors of a course you gave at the London School of Economics many, many years ago. Tell me, did you begin in your intellectual life as an adult, did you begin as a Fabian? Were you a socialist? Yes. Were you an Adam Smith man? No, no. Uh, see, you could describe it as a Fabian, of course. Well, there were, in fact, Fabians in Austria too, but I didn't know them. The influence which uh, led me to economics was really Walter Rathenau's conception of a planned economy. He had himself been the raw material dictator in Germany and wrote some very persuasive books about the reconstruction after the war. And they are, of course, socialist of a sort, a central planning at least, not a proletarian socialism, and were very persuasive indeed. And I found that there's really to understand that I had to study economics. The first two books of economics, which I read while I was in the fighting in Italy, were so bad that I'm still surprised they didn't put me permanently off <laughs> economics. But when I got back to Vienna, somebody put me on to Karl Menger, and that caught me definitely. Had you read the English economists, the classical economists? At that time, not. Uh, Adam Smith I read fairly early, but the only one. And in a German translation, you see, English is really the third foreign language I learned. It's now the only one I can speak. But I began, I was uh, oh, tortured all my childhood being taught French irregular verbs and nothing else and consequence never learned to speak it really i picked up italian during the war in italy well sort of italian a venetian dialect i don't dare to speak very different from I the rest i don't dare to speak it in polite society <laughs> quite so quite and so. that gave me the confidence to take up english and ultimately of course i really learned it when i was a young man after my degree, I went to the United States, and my first experience was American English in New York in 1923 and 24. I didn't know you'd come to the United States that early. It was before the time of the Rockefeller Foundation. It was my own risk and expense, and uh, I arrived in New York in March 1923 with $25 in my pocket with a series of letters of recommendation by Schumpeter, oh, yes. which each earned me a lunch and nothing else. <laughs> Had you known Schumpeter in Vienna? Not really, but he was the one. He was a visiting professor at Columbia before the yes. war. So when Mises and Wiese learned that I wanted to, they sent me to Schumpeter, who was then a chairman of that bank. He had just been minister of finance and he was chairman and he equipped me with a number of letters, ministerial size, which I had to get a separate folder to carry them to America, and I delivered them all, so I met all the famous old economists, and they all were very kind to me, but did nothing. I'd gone over there for promise of a job by Jeremiah W. Jenks, the trust specialist, yes. but when I arrived, he was away on holiday, so I ran out of money, and I told the story already here. That I then was greatly relieved that the very morning I was to start as a dishwasher in the 6th Avenue restaurant. Telephone call came, Jenks had returned. He was willing to. I have as since bitterly regretted that I cannot say I started my career in America. <laughs> now, you say you began as a Fabian socialist. 
uh, under the influence of Walter Rathenau. Mm. In those days, of course, this was a kind of an intellectual socialism, and you mentioned the fact it wasn't yeah. proletarian. Did it interest you that so many of the German, Russian, Austrian intellectuals yeah. were the ones who became the Marxists, not the masses, it was an intellectual movement that spread with enormous... Oh, enormous. But, but see, I spent my university days already arguing with these Marx... I mean, my opponents were Marxists and Freudians. Oh, yes. And uh, we had endless discussions, and it was really what I thought the poverty of the arguments of the Marxists, which turned me against socialism. I see. And incidentally or not, I'll let you another thing. Both the Marxists and the Freudians had the dreadful habit of insisting that theories were irrefutable. Yes. They were logically absolutely cogent. And that led me to see that a theory which cannot be refuted is not scientific. Yes. And that made me later embrace Popper when he had spelled this same idea out, which he had gained in the same experience. Yes. He was a few years younger, so we didn't know each other. But we both went through this experience, arguing all the time with Marxists and Freudians. And they were both ideologists yes. of a very strong sort. Oh, very strong. And both very, all very good arguers. I mean, they were very anxious to discuss. They also had, I think, the power of, in, of an evangelical movement and a humane movement. And by this I mean that those of us who listened to you and read you and or studied under people like Jacob Viner or Frank Knight or Lionel Robbins always had to come to terms with the fact that the system, the free market system, whatever you want, was not humane and that we felt that the society had to undertake something. Remember, this was depression, and we mm. were seeing unemployment and poverty and banks failing and people scared and people killing themselves because their earnings had been wiped out. And when the New Deal came along, it seemed that here was the humane answer. And indeed, mm. my parents, who were socialists, stopped voting socialist, even though they liked uh. and loved Norman Thomas, and began to vote for Roosevelt, and we all felt uh. that at last government had developed a, quote, heart. Yeah. Did any of this make... Oh, well, I, I didn't see it that way, but of course it tallies completely what I'm doing at the moment. You may be amused that a few days ago, as a, before I was returning, the last volume of Law, Legislation, and Liberty for being printed, I inserted one sentence into it, and it runs, man was civilized very much against his wishes. I mean, it's really the innate instincts which are coming out. That's a very system. Freudian statement. <laughs> in a way, well, yes. it's Freudian and anti-Freudian, because Freud, is, of course, wanted to, to relieve us of these repressions, and my argument is that by these repressions we became civilized. Well, his whole point is that civilization is the repression of guilt, and that without thought oh, you can't have In his old age, of course. And the repression of the repression of aggression, of a hostility. So. When he uh, wrote the civilization and his discontent, he yes. was always getting upset by what his pupils were making of his Quite original so. ideas. Quite so. Uh. I was interested that your works in the last ten years have become 
or have returned to a much more social philosophical scale than your earlier works. Well, let's start with the earlier ones. You created a furor in the United States, England, and I imagine around the world with The Road to Serfdom because it came out at a time when you were a lone voice speaking in the wilderness about the terrible dangers mm -hmm. which were inherent in turning over to government, even good government, even by good and well-intentioned people, powers which were both dangerous and inexorable. If you were to write that book over again, first, would you make any changes? And secondly, what would you call it? Well, I should... I would still call it the same, although I was never quite happy with the title, which I really adopted for sound, because I, the idea came from Tocqueville, who speaks about the road to servitude. Yes. And I would like to have chosen the title, but it doesn't sound well for yes. the title. So I changed servitude into serfdom for merely phonetic reasons. Did, had it occurred to you since then that this was one reason that there was so much vicious response because the English and the Americans could not believe that they were in danger of becoming serfs. It seemed see, unthinkable. There, there wasn't a vicious re uh, reaction in England. In fact, the English socialists, or most of them, had all themselves become a little apprehensive already. That early? The time. Oh, yes. The book was received in England in the spirit in which I meant it to be understood as a serious argument. In fact, let me tell you one story. Barbara Wooden, uh, who wrote one book against me, told me, you know, I had been on the point of writing a rather similar book, but you have now so overstated the case that I have to turn against you. <laughs> she said you had overstated the case against, against the United States reception was completely different. I see. Of course, it came here at the height of the enthusiasm for the New Deal. Sure. All the intellectuals had just discovered their new great ideal and the extent to which I was abused here. Worst, incidentally, by a man who had been my colleague at the London. Herman Feiner. <laughs> I think that's the most savage book I've ever read. But as a comic part, I think I can now tell you the story behind it. Herman Feiner had come to hate the London School of Economics, and in particular Harold Lasky, because when he had come to the United States and war broke out, he asked for leave, and extension of leave, and this was denied him, because uh, he was needed for teaching. And he was so upset about this that he turned against the London School of Economics, and particularly Lasky. And then so happened that I was the first member of the London School of Economics on which he could release all his hatred of the place. So I had to suffer for Harold Lasky. I am horrified to hear you adopt so simple a psychological <laughs> point of view. May, no, I, may I suggest another point? It takes a good deal of sophistication mm. and poise mm. to accept a system which is full of apparent paradoxes. Mm. The socialist system is very persuasive and very simple to explain to people. The government will take care of making sure that resources are sensibly, rationally distributed, oh, sure. that people will get what they deserve, there will be no unemployment, there will be no war, there will be no depression. The system that you have described 
and that actually is in the great tradition of economics, is one which demands a very high degree of equilibrium in the presence not only of complexity, but of apparent indifference to human happiness. That is, profits are wicked and cruel. Workers are exploited. Imperialism, the search for profits, brings war. And the evidence seems visible. What I'm trying to suggest is that people like Feiner and many political scientists and sociologists were reacting to what they believed or felt threatened by as an intellectual performance of great complexity which, quote, ignored the human problems of the time. Mm. Is this correct? You know, we're coming up to what I'm doing at the moment. In fact, what I'm writing at the moment is called the reactionary character of the socialist conception. My argument there is essentially that our instincts were all formed in the small face-to-face -face society where we were taught and our instincts formed to serve visible needs of other people. Now, the big society was built up by our obeying signals which enabled us to serve unknown persons and to use unknown resources for that purpose. It became a purely abstract thing. Now, our instinct still is we want to see whom we do good, and they want to join with our immediate fellows in serving common purposes. Now, both these things are incompatible with the great society. The great society became possible, instead of aiming at known needs of known people, to be guided by the abstract signals of prices, and no longer working for the same purposes with your friends, but following your own purposes. Both things are, according to our instincts, still very bad. And this bad things which have built up the modern society. May I ask you to comment on the fact that it isn't the instinct, because we have been raised that way, and I don't think that instincts vary very much according to how you're raised, except in intensity, but that the fact that the need of people to have some kind of religious structure, now you can qualify the word religion, some scale of what is good and what is evil, yes, yes. some scale of what is worth and not worth living for. Our Judeo-Christian tradition tells us, love thy neighbor, Are you, uh, am I my brother's keeper? And as you very shrewdly pointed out, we start with family as a little society in which we take care of each other, and the mother gives food from her plate to the child, or says to the child, now don't be greedy, give a little to so-and-so, just because you're older and stronger does not mean that you have a right to it. And the whole structure of a religiously supported and religiously cemented mm -hmm. social system is involved when you come to deal oh, with... Exactly. Exactly. But it's very characteristic that it refers to the neighbor, the known fellow man. Yeah. And our society is built on the fact that we serve people whom we do not know. Roosevelt was shrewd enough to say to Latin America, we shall be your good neighbors. We want to be good neighbors. He didn't realize he was confirming Hayek. <laughs> but how do you respond to this? Do you find that in societies which have a different religious structure or a different ethos, that it is permissible to run the society without such values? or that power is and of itself sufficient? 
Well, that's a very long story. I almost hesitate to talk about it. After all, we had succeeded. So long as the great mass of the people were all earning their living in the market, either as heads of a household or of a small shop and so on, everybody learned and unquestionably accepted that what had evolved, this is what you might call the capitalist ethic, of course much older than capitalism, yes. the ethics of the market. It's only with the growth of the large organizations and ever increasing part of the population no longer is brought up in that ethic. And at the same time, as it no longer learned the traditional ethics of the market, the philosophers were suddenly telling them, oh, you must not accept any ethical rules which are not rationally justifiable. Mm. And these two different effects, no longer learning the traditional ethics, and actually being told by the philosophers, it's all nonsense, you ought not to accept any rules which you do not see have a visible purpose, led to the present situation, which only is uh, 150 years, and the beginning of it is 150 years ago, before that, there was never any serious revolt against the market society because every farmer knew he had to sell his grain. The, do you think that Marx, who was not alone and who, after all, had his own predecessors, first of all, his misreading of history was always to me so astonishing, even when I first read him, when he suggests, in effect, that all wars are carried on for purposes of profit as part of the profit-making system. And all you had to do is pick up a map of the world and look at the ferocity and the horrors uh -huh. of wars in the East, say, or in Africa, or a history book on the religious wars, which were very, very much worse, and so on. It is interesting that he captured, and that his disciples then captured, a kind of an umbrella. All of our troubles, they did not distinguish society from a capitalist society. They did not distinguish the group from a capitalist group. They found a convenient way of saying to people, the reason you are miserable or inadequate or short or weak is because this system has been so unjust. And this, is, this appeal then not so much to the Germans as to the, uh, the Russians, was then implemented by, uh, to me, one of the great tragic disasters of the human race, Lenin, right. who taught Hitler. Oh, I'm sure. That's perfectly right. Uh, well, you see, I think the intellectual history of all this is frightfully complex because this idea of necessary laws of historical development appeared at the same time in Hegel and Kunt. And you had two philosophical traditions, Hegelian idealism and uh, French positivism, really aiming at a sign science which was supposed to discover necessary laws of historical development, which is called purely pseudoscience for many reasons. But it ca caught the imagination and not only the imagination, it uh, pleased certain traditional feelings and emotions. I mean, uh, as you said before, the, once you put it out, this, uh, the market society does not satisfy our instincts. And uh, once people became aware of this, and were not from childhood taught that these rules of the market are essential, of course they revolted against it. 
The interesting thing is the unawareness that people can have about the impersonal consequences of a system. I was, my own intellectual history was enormously affected by the book that you edited, in which you have a chapter, Capitalism and the Historians. Mm -hmm. Now that's a remarkable book because in effect what it says is that all that my generation had been taught about the horrors of the Industrial Revolution, based almost entirely on the work of the Hammonds, yeah. yes, yes. that this was a terribly incorrect and a terribly uh, superficial statement, and that I think it was Ashton yeah. who points out that of course, if you went into the slums of London mm -hmm. and saw the poverty there, you thought these people were poorly off, but they thought they were very well off. And he quotes the letters of the clergyman who would come to visit London mm -hmm. and say, I just saw the Jenkins, isn't it marvelous? Only last year they were starving in the ditches and sleeping mm -hmm. in the barns mm -hmm. and had no shoes. Their yeah. children now are shot and go to school and so on and so on. Well, I've long believed that misery becoming visible, not appearing for the first time, but being drawn to the attention of the urban population was really the cause, even of an improvement of the status of the poorest class. But so long as you they mean lived it improved the status of the privileged oh, classes. Improved, uh, oh, good, but see that the people who lived so miserably in town were really much, had been drawn to the town because they were so much better off than they had been before. Yes. The, you mentioned this book which I edited, again, as in the former instance of the formal collectivist economic planning, it was that I found the general public just did not know of most important work which was being done by the historian. In this case, it was not only Ashton, but Hutt's, right. <coughs> Hutt's study of the early industrialization and the misrepresentation by certain, in fact, partly parliamentary uh, commissions in inquiring into the state of the poor, which for purely political reasons had distorted the real facts. Have you ever run across a book by a young Cambridge graduate called Prelude to Imperialism? I've only seen the title, no, I don't know the book. That's an extraordinary book because it's in the tradition of Ashton and Hutt. Mm. But what he did was to examine the letters of the Christian missionaries who went to Africa, the letters back mm. to their mm. societies. And what emerges is a startling a transformation of our impressions of what went on in Africa as the one dealing with the mm -hmm. Industrial Revolution. The most exploited group mm -hmm. in Africa were the wives of the missionaries. They worked much harder than the natives uh. because they had to teach them their own language and mm -hmm. make a vocabulary mm -hmm. and sing the psalms, but mm -hmm. raise the vegetables and be the nurses and the doctors and settle the, <laughs> the quarrels. I can quite believe it never <laughs> occurred to me. But, <laughs> but the book is full of extraordinary <laughs> examples of what I like to say are the non-visible and much more significant consequences. For example, if you were to take 90% of the graduating students of the mm. colleges of the United States and ask them what a bank or a banker does, what percentage do you think 
would answer to your satisfaction. Hardly any. <laughs> <laughs> Yet they have all been exposed to oh, banks, yes. bankers, yes. economics, and professors. Yes. How many of them would know what an executive does? Well, that is extraordinarily difficult to explain, you know, that I know from my own experience. I mean, the business school are doing quite a good job, but the economic students know nothing about it. The, the ignorance of people about the things they vote about mm. is, of course, very depressing. Well, the, the feeling that one must temper one's disillusionment with the fact that these are very complicated mm. and to utter a heresy not all people are intelligent <laughs> and you run into the problem of what the fate of a democracy will be when the crises become more acute and depend on more technical signals to use your word or information to use mine well, I'm very pessimistic about this. You see, my concern increasingly become that we call democracy a system in which it isn't really the opinion of the majority which governs. It's a necessity of paying off any number of special interests. And unless we change the organization of our democratic system, democracy will just... I believe in democracy as a system of peaceful change of government. But that's all, its whole advantage is no other. It just makes it possible to get rid of a government we dislike. But the, the omnipotent democracy which we have is not going to last long. And what I fear is people will be so disgusted with democracy that even they will abandon its good features. And, uh, if, you, if you had uh, magical powers and were to set about restructuring the system, uh, a friend of mine, in making a witticism, prompted me to retort by saying, that's a good rule. Let's pass a law that for every law that Congress passes, it must simultaneously repeal 20 others. 20 others, yes. <laughs> <laughs> At least 20? <laughs> but what would you do? Oh, uh, in the long run, the only chance is to alter our constitutional structure and have no omnipotent single representative assembly, but divides the powers on the traditional idea of a separation of powers, have one which is confined to true legislation in the sense of general rules of conduct, and the other governmental assembly being under the laws laid down by the first. The first unable to discriminate, the second in consequence being unable to take any coercive action except to enforce general laws. Because the present system, see, I believe Schumpeter is right in the sense that while socialism can never satisfy what people expect, our present political structure inevitably drives us into socialism, even if people do not want it in their majority. And that can only be <coughs> prevented by altering the structure of our democratic, so-called democratic system. But this is not necessarily a very, very slow process, and I don't think that an effort towards reform will come in time. So I rather fear that we shall have a return to some sort of uh, dictatorial democracy, I would say, uh, where democracy merely serves to authorize the action of a dictator and uh, 
the system is going to break down will be a very long period before uh, pure, uh, real democracy can re-emerge. Two points, if I may. <coughs> the Schumpeter book, I assume you mean socialism, uh, capitalism, uh, uh. democracy, which was to be a stupendous piece of work, makes the horrifying point that capitalism will be destroyed because of its successes. In a way, it's true. Would you comment on that? Well, the capitalist has, of course, raised expectations which it cannot fulfill. And unless we take from governments the powers to meet the demands of particular groups which are raised by yes. its success, I think it will destroy itself. But it means a class-boost to capitalism and democracy. Does it strike you as ironic <coughs> that perhaps the most influential group huh? in terms of political leverage is not the business group or the capitalist group in the United States at all, mm. but the unions. Oh, no, <laughs> See, my main interest is England. You cannot well, be unaware of this. <laughs> I, I hope that we're in better shape than England, and please, I don't want you're anyone to misunderstand me. You're still a little behind the English development, but I... See, I used to say, when I knew the states better than I do now, that in America, fortunately, the unions are just a capitalist racket. But it's no longer true. Unions are part of the establishment of the United States. Well, so they are in England, much more so. But uh, they do be did believe basically in capitalism. But I believe, fear this is changing. In the United States, certainly, the unions have been much more flexible and less doctrinaire. Uh, yes. And it would seem to me that no matter how one read history in a free society, it's impossible to prevent people from meeting out of a feeling of their joint interests in order to... Oh, I have no objection against unions as such. Exactly. Uh, I'm for freedom of... Uh, what is a classical phrase? Uh, freedom of association, of course. But no right to use power to force other people to join it to keep other people out. It's a privileges which have been granted to unions in America only by the judicature, in England by law 70 years ago, that they can use force to prevent people doing the work they like, which is the crux, the dangerous aspect of it. And while I think unions are fully justified, well, in fact, I should support, support freedom of association. Yeah. Freedom of association means free to join and not to join. Freedom of non-association. Yes. 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 The, uh, the, the interesting, one interesting fact about this is that the Communist Party tried to infiltrate the unions of the United States mm. in the early 30s and the late 20s and were quite savagely and quite successfully and I think quite intelligently kept out of the mm. leadership. Yeah. This was to a much lesser degree true in England oh, where the right. they don't call themselves communists, they say they're Marxists. No, but they do want to destroy the present capitalist system. And the stewards, yeah. or what we would call the foremen, yeah. are surprisingly candid about that in the responses in the polls, for instance. Oh, yeah. A friend of ours, Mark Abrams, who was also at the London School, yeah. did a poll in which he asked a group of 
stewards at one of the large factories, mm. I think it was Leyland's, which was in very serious trouble, was really bankrupt, it was mm. being held up by the government. Uh, he said, but if your demands are met, don't you realize it will wreck the company and that will mm. wreck the industry? I said, but that's exactly what we want. <laughs> I don't think you would find an American labor leader who's responsible who would say that or Certainly feel that. Certainly wouldn't admit it. Pardon? I certainly wouldn't admit it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have the feeling you wouldn't have it anyway. Uh, I mean, probably, yes, you're probably right. That's why I said uh, to a degree that the experience in England, to which I have returned often as a country I love, the depth of the class distinction, which is just beginning to disappear, mm -hmm. has created degrees of bitterness which I've never found in the United States. There is a hatred. Mm. See, my impression of England may be wrong in the sense that I only really know the South. And all you are speaking about is the north of England, where I think this feeling prevails. But if we live in London, and now my relations are mainly to the southwest of England, where my children live, yes. I don't find any of this uh, sharp, resented time. When the curious thing is that in the countryside of southwest England, the class distinctions are very sharp, but they're not resented. <laughs> they're still accepted as part of the national order. That is so. Uh, and uh, one puzzles about that, but as in all of these social things, you can make certain guesses. Are you impressed as you get older, as I get older, by the unbelievable intensity with which people maintain their beliefs and the difficulty of getting people to change their mind in the face of the most extraordinarily powerful evidence. Well, one has to be, if one has preached this thing for 50 years without succeeding persuading <laughs> You mean you still are the voice of the wilderness? Well, well you can no, hardly no. say that. No, you see, I now in the habit of saying that uh, while when I was young, only the very old people believed in the sort of uh, libertarian principles in which I believe, and while I was in my middle age, nobody else did. Uh, I was the only one. I've now lived long enough to have the great pleasure of seeing things reviving amongst the younger generation, the people in their 20s and early 30s, the increasing number who are turning to our... So my conclusion is, I've said this, I think, once or twice already in these interviews, and if the politicians do not destroy the world in the next 20 years, there's good hope, because there's another generation coming up which reacts against this. But the chance that they will destroy the world in the next 20 years, I'm afraid, is fairly high. The difficulty of contending with government power, when even the press is dominantly committed to the faith or the ideology that you think wrong, only increases the, the, the difficulties of the problem. Mm -hmm. That is, we do have a very, very free press, a free radio or a free television, but the system which has produced the people who do the writing and the thinking and the talking and so on is such that your hope for a rise of the libertarians, let us call it, seems to me to be a faint one, given the opposition. Well, I'm not so pessimistic as I used to be on this subject as a result of recent experience. And, uh, see, it has long been a puzzle to me why 
what one commonly calls the intellectuals, by which I don't mean the original thinkers, but uh, what I've once called the second-hand dealers in ideas, were so overwhelmingly on the left, and they're, of course, part sufficient explanation by a whole generation influenced by this has grown up. And I've long been convinced that unless we convince this class, which makes public opinion, yes. there's no hope. But it does seem now to begin to operate. I mean, there is now a reaction taking place in that very same class. I mean, while even ten years ago there was hardly a respectable journal either newspaper or periodical to be found, which was not more or less on the left, that is changing now. And I seriously believe that this sort of thing in 20 or 30 years' time may have changed public opinion. The question is, was we have so much time? Mm. When you think of the likelihood of a recession, which most economists say will happen, mm. whether we're in it now or will have it in the beginning of 79. You think of the human responses to that recession. You think of the man and his wife and three children, and he's thrown out of work, and there isn't a job anywhere except 500 miles away, and it's in a different business and so on. Will you not have a revival then of feeling that the system has let them down? The system has failed, that again we are having unemployment. Again, we are having inequity. There will certainly be a reaction of this sort, but I rather hope that uh, for the idea of the system, government will be substituted. I think people are beginning to see that uh, the government is doing a great deal of harm, and this myth of the system which is responsible for everything, can be explosion. Nothing is gradually being weakened. I may be over-optimistic on this, but uh, I think... I believe government is now destroying its reputation by inflation. Isn't that because inflation is the easiest way in which to meet the demands oh, surely, of the surely, interest but, uh, groups? At the same time, people do see that this is... Uh, constant concession to the expediency of the moment at the price of destroying the whole system. Are you a complete monetarist? Uh, in the sense that I'm absolutely convinced that inflation is done by government. Nobody else about can do anything of money. about it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there I have no doubt. I believe Milton does oversimplify a little. By concentrating too much on the statistical magnitude relation between the total quantity of money and the price level, I think isn't quite as simple as yes, this. Yes, yes. But for all practical purposes, we are really, I mean, our differences are fine yeah. points of abstruse theory. Okay. And, uh, but for practical purposes, we are wholly on the same side. The inflation, the, the political uses of inflation are so attractive and so powerful. But as you say, people begin to realize that they're being gulled, that they're being cheated. That sure, they get 
$10 a week more, but look at how much more they pay in Social Security withholding and how much more they pay. Two things that astound me that parallel with the growing awareness about what inflation does, there has not been a growing awareness about the appalling shabbiness of official figures on almost everything. That is, the figures on inflation itself are outrageously underestimated. The figures you go to on unemployment, on the other on hand, are blown up with an incredible... Unemployment is overestimated mm. because they ask a person if he's employed or unemployed, and the person says he's unemployed, and that includes many housewives who don't want a job or don't care about mm. the job. But it's morally mm. more justifiable to say, oh, I've been trying to get a job, mm. than to say, who wants to work? <laughs> but it's surprising to me that the figures on both of these very significant mm. indices are continually being put out. The president has regular press conferences, every member of the cabinet, and no one says, tell us, how did you get these figures? And how much faith do you put in them? And can we believe them? Mm. Well, I'm the thing is being... You read the Wall Street Journal? Oh, well, yes. They get all the facts very clearly put, and there is no effect. When you were talking about the growth of uh, new voices, the Wall Street Journal has become a national newspaper yeah. in a way that it wasn't was thought of as a trade journal. I often think that just as you might have chosen a different name for the road to serfdom, they <laughs> would be better off if it wasn't the Wall Street Journal, because to the Midwest, that already means bankers of and course, yeah. so on. But also the rise of a magazine like the Public Interest, yes. which right. is, has become uh, influential far beyond its circulation, well, and in the intellectual community. Mm. Uh, I was interested that uh, one of your fellow Nobel laureates, who I think would be classed as a liberal, is Paul Samuelson. Yes. In a column several years ago, I was quite startled because he raised the question as to whether imperialism really pays. Mm -hmm. He had been reading people like Hutt, I suspect, and Jukes, I suspect, mm -hmm. and possibly Cairns, and he came to this extraordinary conclusion. He said, I would be hard put to know how to prove it. Mm. That explains why. Right. And says, on balance, it would be very hard to say. He said, this is not to say that, uh -huh. of course, some Englishmen profit, uh -huh. but that on balance, whether the total input, mm. as compared to where it might have gone, that this necessarily represented English interests mm. as against Indian, he said, I, I couldn't try to make that case. And what he in effect says was, we really can no longer continue to hold that position, mm -hmm. which was one of the great props, I think, of the socialist movement. Mm. Well, you see, Samuelson doesn't really belong here. I think he's an honest person, uh, and he's moving in the right direction. He probably started, well, I wouldn't say far on the left, but anyhow, it was predominantly what you here call liberal, I call socialist ideas, but uh, he does see the problems. There are others who don't, even Nobel laureates. <laughs> well, you were a co-laureate with a man who probably didn't agree at all with you. Am I right? 
friend Murdoch, for instance, the one who said, my share to press. But he's not really an economist, is he? Oh, yes, I always thought of him as a sociologist because of his work on the American Negro. He started exactly the same sort of problems I did in, uh, right? 40 years, 50 years ago. Which of the Englishmen do you feel, the English economists, are beginning to follow the pattern of re-examining the, what you call socialist, what I would call liberal tradition? Well, there's no, amongst the young people, no single very eminent person, but the work being done by the Institute of Economic Affairs in London is, of course, absolutely first class. And uh, they are so very good because they're taking up particular problems and illustrating and point after point how the thing, yeah. the present system doesn't work. I think they've gradually achieved a position of a very great influence indeed. And that is really the main source of resistance. It creates a coherent body of opinion, which is probably more important than any of the periodicals or newspapers in England do. You had said earlier that with Schumpeter you agreed that one of the problems of the free market or the free society is that the economic base thereof, capitalism, mm -hmm arouses expectations it cannot fulfill. I wish you would comment on the passion, or the drive, or the delusion, or whatever you want to call it, but the power of the movement for equality. Well, it's, I think, basically a confusion. The idea of equality before the law is the essential basis of a civilized society. But equality of law before the law is not compatible with trying to make people equal, nor to make people who are inevitably and fortunately very different in thousands of respects. To make them equal, you have to treat them differently. So between these two conceptions of equality is an irreconcilable conflict. Material equality requires political discrimination and ultimately really a sort of dictatorial government in which people are told what they must do. I think the egalitarianism, well, I would even go further. Our whole morals are being based on our esteeming people differently according to how they behave. And uh, the modern kind of egalitarianism is destructive of all moral conceptions which we have had. Uh, coming to that problem from an entirely different discipline, since I was in political science and political theory, uh, two comments that in all of the debates on the Constitution uh, and in the Federalist, uh, the United States had a collection of political brains such as mm. I think existed nowhere in history I except in Athens. Yes, yes. It was unbelievable brilliance, resilience, and flexibility. Two very interesting things. Nowhere did they worry about the growth of federal power. On the contrary, they were reasonably convinced that the states would be so jealous of their sovereign rights that they had to coax them into the Union and coax them and bring them in, dragging their heels. But the idea of a federal system, which has become a leviathan, mm. so far as I remember, is nowhere to be found. It's one of the few examples in which their predictive activities were blank. Yes. 
Now, the equalitarian idea would have seemed to them ludicrous because what they said was that it is in the kind of society that we're trying to form, the very diversity and richness of life, of the, of the farmer to till his soil, of the hunter to do this and so on, the awareness that they had of the fact that freedom would give people an opportunity to express themselves and live their kind of lives even unto what they believed in or what church they went to or whether they went to church or not. Mm -hmm. None of them incidentally use the word God, you know. Yeah. Well, I say none of them. There's providence, divine providence. Well, the one who I think came nearest to seeing the danger of uh, excessive power of the federal government was Madison, the man whom I think most highly He wrote of. the fifth, yes. yes, yes. Oh, the others certainly were quite right. Yes. He also saw the... He, well, he picked up the point of Aristotle about the middle class yeah. in a most powerful way. Oh. Incidentally, it just occurred to me, we're sitting here talking, and I couldn't help but think how few economists I know with whom I can carry on this kind of discussion. In that sense, if I may say so, you are unique. And I'm reminded of the fact that in the United States, there were not separate fields called economics and political science. It was uh -huh. called political economy. Okay. And it seems to me a great tragedy uh -huh. that the fields were split. I agree, and I even more regret that uh, there's a complete split between economics and law. See, in my time on the continent, could study economics only as part of a law degree. Yes. And that was very beneficial. And I still maintain, as I once put it, that an economist who is only an economist cannot even be a good economist. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> Incidentally, just as you uh, mentioned the rise of a libertarian movement among the young economists, it's interesting how many new centers there are called the study of law and economics, yes. or economics and law. There's one down in Florida. I'm going there in February, yes. I always anticipate <laughs> you, or I'm behind you. Let me ask you this question. What do you think that, if you were talking to a group of working men, uh. who would say, well, these two, you know, eggheads and highbrows, they talk on a high level, but I've got a wife and kids to support, mm. and I can't, possibly <coughs> raise them on the salary I'm getting as well. It's a rotten society. <coughs> we have moved 20 times, we were burned <coughs> out, so the insurers didn't cover it, or whatever you want. What do you think a society owes, if you want to use that term? I'm not talking about the social contract, which was written by another very talented, but I think crazy man. <laughs> what do you think the society owes those of its members who are law-abiding? Well, oath, I think, is a somewhat inappropriate expression, but I think you can reasonably expect a tolerably wealthy society to guarantee a uniform minimum floor which, below which nobody needs to sing. The people who cannot earn a certain very low minimum in the market should be assured of physical maintenance beyond this. 
But I'm afraid even this cannot be generalized because only a tolerably wealthy society can physically do it. I mean, the Indians couldn't possibly do it. And many others... You mean India, are, not the American Indians. No, no, yeah. they are India, East you know. Indians, yeah. yes. <laughs> and the same is true of many of the underdeveloped countries. But once you have reached a certain level of wealth, I think it's a common interest of all citizens to be assured that if their widows or their children, by some circumstances, became unable to support yeah. themselves, they would be assured of a certain very low minimum, which uh, on current standards would be miserable, but still secure them against extreme deprivations. But beyond that, I don't think we can do anything. Do you say we can't do it because we really don't have the resources or the no, we GNP? Would or we will destroy the motives which keep yeah. our system going. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if people who are getting this minimum income, I should hasten to add, I'm sure yeah. you do not mean the minimum wage, oh, no. which is a different no, no. Oh, animal. No, but if people could supplement that income by part-time work, well, Handymen work and so on. That's all right. I wouldn't object to You wouldn't to deduct that. that? No, no. I think for some... When most of the people I have in mind would really not be able to make much of an extra income. Yes. But if uh, uh, some widow who had to live on that small minimum income did take in some washing in addition, I just would not, not notice that. Yeah. Well, you would certainly agree that, uh, I said, what does the society owe? And I feel that, yeah. in that sense, that a society does owe uh. its people certain things. First, military protection in this world. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. That's we can't go out and buy, you can't go out and buy a few bombs and protect your house and so on. We owe, the society owes, and the, the legislators and the people who have been elected freely... That what we formed the society for, exactly. to get this protection. Exactly. And we don't want to be eaten by the nearby cannibals, whatever name they may have. Yes. Incidentally, you were surprisingly lenient, it seemed to me, on the Soviet Union in your early And you wrote serfdom. Yes. Well, you forget that it was our ally in war at the time I wrote and published it. Well, what year did you come out? 44. Well, this was just shortly after the execution of Ehrlich and Alter and the Katyn Forest and all of that. No, I'm not uh, criticizing you. We didn't you. know about these things yet. But see, in fact, I say it came out in 44. It was mostly written in 41 and 42. I see. And you felt that it was unwise. I just had to restrain myself to get any hearing. I mean, everybody was enthusiastic about the Russians at that time. Yes. And to get a hearing, I just had to tune down what I said about I see. Russia. Yes, yes. Well, no, that's, uh, if you asked me before, but there's anything I would do differently in the book now, uh, apart from that is directed against a sort of socialism which is largely abandoned by the official uh, socialist party. Uh, I would certainly speak much more openly about the communist system than I did in that book. In talking to you, you really neglected, and I would like to repair that neglect, going back to your experiences in England, first mm. at the London School, yes. where you met Lionel Robbins. Mm. Well, Robbins, of course, got me to London School of Economics. I didn't know him before, but he got very interested in uh, 
Nessa had done criticizing. Do you remember the names of Foster and Catchings? Yes. Uh, well, I had Waddle Catchings. Yes. I had written an essay called The Paradox of Saving, which fascinated Robbins, who asked me to give these lectures on prices and production that led to my appointment. And we found that Robbins and I were thinking very much on the same lines. He became my closest friend, even still is, although we see each other very rarely now. And for ten years we were collaborating very closely. I mean, the center of teaching London School of Economics was our joint seminar. And uh, Robbins, unfortunately, before he had achieved what he ought to have done, he might have written the textbook for this generation, and he had it already when he, by the outbreak of war, was drawn into government service. That's a real tragedy in the history of economics. And up to a point, he has since become a statesman as much as an economist, and uh, I don't think he any longer would want to do this sort of thing. Would this have been a textbook on the price system? Yes, on uh, just a textbook of economic theory, essentially of the functioning of the market. And he was a brilliant teacher, I mean a real master of his subject, unlike the English of that period, not at all insular, he really knew the literature of the world. And uh, in a sense, modern economics is his creation by what was then a number of diverse schools the English tradition of Marshall, the Swedish tradition, the Austrian tradition, bringing all this together. And he did it very effectively in his lectures, which were masterly. And if that had been turned into a textbook, it might have changed the development of economics. Unfortunately, war came and he never did it. Was Alfred Marshall much of an influence on you? Not at all. By the time I came to read Marshall, I was a fully trained economist in the Austrian tradition, and was never particularly attracted by Marshall. I, many other, I later discovered Wicksteed, who was a very important English economist. I was more influenced by the, if influenced, by some of the Americans, uh, John Bates Clark and uh, uh, Fetter and that group. But Marshall never really appealed to me. I think this uh, somewhat timid acceptance of the marginal utility approach, the famous two scissors affair, it's partly cost and so on, and also his kind of analysis of the market positions did not appeal to me. How did you get on with Beveridge? Had Beveridge written the Beveridge report by then? No, he never wrote it. He wasn't incapable of doing this. I have never known a man who knows an economist who understood so little economics as he. He was very good in picking his skillful assistants. The main part, the report on unemployment, is really been done by Nicholas Calder. And uh, I think Calder, through the beverage report, has done more to spread Keynesian thinking than almost anybody else. No, Cambridge, uh, Beveridge, who was a splendid organizer, well, what I organized on him because he wasn't even good at detail, but conceiving great plans, very formulating them, very impressive. Literally, you knew economics. He was the tip of a barrister who would prepare, give him a brief, would speak splendidly to it, and five minutes later have forgotten what it was all about. It's extraordinary.
mean, I can, everybody knows one famous story. Just as I came to London, they'd written the book on free trade, and then came in 31 the reversal of English policy, and he quite naively turned to his friends with whom we had just written a book on free trade. Ought we not to write a book on tariffs? I thought yeah. he I thought he opposed tariffs. Oh, he had. I mean, the book on tariffs was opposed to it. But after the 1931 change, he suddenly thought that it might after all be a good thing to have little protection. And where the, his friends, of course, refused it. Oh, but I don't mind putting this on the record now. There was an even more comic scene. Fortunately, he knew that he didn't know much economics, so when he made public speeches, to let, let Robbins or myself look through the draft. And even in the mid-30s, there was one proposal which was frightfully inflationary. So I pointed out to him, you see, if they do this, you get a great rise in prices. As usual, he took comment. Fortunately, I saw a second draft of the same lecture, which contains a sentence, as Professor Hayek has shown, an increase in the quantity of money tends, up to drive, uh, tends to drive up prices. This is very great new discovery. <laughs> when uh, Beveridge, uh, one could talk about a great length about this extraordinary person. What about the others at the London School, which were... Uh, very much in the Fabian tradition out of which you came in one way or another, such as Harold Lasky. Well, Harold Lasky, of course, uh, at that time had become a propagandist, very unstable in his opinions. Many of other people whom I greatly respected, like old Tony. I differed from him, but he was a sort of socialist saint. Uh, New Americans call it do-gooder, in a slightly ironic sense, but he was a man who really was only concerned doing good. Uh, uh, my Fabian socialist, prototype, but a very wise man. Uh, You're uh, talking about the acquisitive society, Tony. Yes, yes. And, Velasky, uh, curiously enough, we had a good deal of contact because we were both passionate book collectors, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it was only that way otherwise. And he was frightfully offended by my road to serfdom. He, he was very egocentric and believed it was a book written specially against him. Really? <laughs> he didn't know economics? No, no, none at all. And as I say, he must have been a very acute thinker in his youth. But by the time I really came to know him, he had become a, not only a propagandist, but even the students. He still had the capacity of getting students excited at first, but even they noticed after two or three months, he was constantly repeating himself. And inconsistent, you know. In his private life, he was extremely <coughs> generous to the refugees. Uh, generous he to concealed generous his to generosity. His students. Yes. I mean, he would do anything to help his students, but uh, wholly unreliable in both his stories and his uh, theoretical views. I mean, I was present uh, one evening in August 1939, <coughs> when he had held forth for half an hour about the marvels of communist achievement. Then we listened to the news and the story of the 
Hitler Ribbendorf, the Ribbentrop study uh, plant came through. And when we finished the news, the Turns Against Communism denounced them. He had never said a word in their favor before. <laughs> that is amazing. Now, this was the period, of course, when John Maynard Keynes was coming into international oh, yes. repute. And I'd love you to talk about him. Well, I knew him very well. Uh, even I made his acquaintance even before I had come to England in '28 at the meeting of the Trade Cycle Research Institute, when we had our first difference on economics, uh, on the rate of interest, characteristically. And he had a habit of going like a steamroller, a young man who opposed him. But if you stood up against him, he respected uh, you for the rest of your life. And we remained, although we differed on economics, friends to the end. In fact, I owe it to him that I spent the war, the war years at King's College, Cambridge. He got me rooms there. And we talked on a great many things, but we had learned to avoid economics. You avoided economics. Avoided economics. But you took on the general theory, didn't you, the book, what it appeared? No, I didn't. I had spent a great deal of time reviewing his treatise on money. Money. And what prevented me from returning to the charge is when I published the second part of my very long examination of that book, it took, oh, I no longer believe in all this. He but said so? Yes. <laughs> How much later was this? It was 33, uh, 32, and the book came out in 30, the treatise. And he was already then on the lines towards the general theory. And he still had replied to my first part, and when six months later the second part came out, he just said, oh, never mind, I no longer believe in this. That's very discouraging for a young man who spent a year criticizing a major work. And I rather expected that when he brought out the general theory, he would again change his mind in another year or two. So I thought it wasn't worthwhile investing as much work, and of course that became the frightfully important book. I mean, it's one of the things which I reproach myself, because I'm quite convinced I could have pointed out the mistakes of that book at that time, but I didn't want to have the same experience a second time. Well, did you seriously think that he would say, oh, I no longer believe in the trade-off between unemployment and so on? Uh, I think, I'm sure he would have uh, you you modified, think he did change? He modified his ideas. In fact, my last experience with him, and I saw him last, say, six weeks before his death, and uh, that was after the war, when I asked him whether he wasn't alarmed about uh, what his pupils did with his ideas in a time when inflation was already the main danger. His answer was, oh, never mind. You know, my ideas were frightfully important in the depression of the 1930s. But you can trust me, if they ever become dangerous, I'm going to turn public opinion around like this. Six weeks later, he was dead and couldn't do it. I'm convinced Keynes would have become one of the great fighters against inflation. Do you think he could have done it? Oh, yes. He wouldn't have had the slightest hesitation. So the only thing I blame him for is that what he knew was a pamphlet for the time to counteract the deflationary tendencies in the 1930s. He called it a general theory. It was not a general theory. It was really a pamphlet for the situation at a particular time. Partly under the influence of some of his very doctrinal disciples who pushed him 
See, in uh, there's a book, a recent essay by Joan Robinson, one of the disciples, in which she quite frankly says, we sometimes had great difficulty in making Maynard see the implications of his theory. I'm interested in the fact that you think it would have been that easy to have reversed opinion coming out of a deflationary period. Well, I don't think so, but Keynes... Oh, well, he thought so, I see. Keynes had a supreme conceit of his power of playing with public opinion. And you know, he had done the trick about the peace treaty. Yes. And ever since, he really believed he could play with public opinion as if on an instrument. And for that reason, he wasn't at all alarmed by the fact that his ideas were misinterpreted. Oh, I can correct this any time. That was his feeling about it. It did not upset him when his, his oh, no. name or authority was used? He had a great influence on politicians, didn't he? Uh, more in this country even than in England. Uh, he had gained great influence in his capacity during the war when he's advising the government, but, and of course then he did essentially draw up the Bretton Woods Agreement. Yes. So in the end he had become very powerful, but of course till the war he partly was a protester and partly liked the pose of being disregarded and neglected by official opinion. In the United States, he was in Washington, and when he left the White House, he had already talked to Secretary of the Treasury Morgan, and so on, but he made the politically indiscreet uh, remark, which went around all of Washington, that he was quite surprised by how little President Roosevelt knew about economics. Surprised? <laughs> he said. <laughs> yes, I think this was a very deliberate indiscretion. You think he said that intentionally? <laughs> was he given to that? Uh, well, I knew he had such a low opinion of the economic knowledge of politicians generally that he cannot really have been surprised. How do you think he will rank in the history of economic theory or thought? As a man with a great many ideas who knew very little economics, and that's literally true. So he knew nothing but Marshallian economics. He was completely unaware of what was going on elsewhere. He even knew very little about 19th century economic history. His uh, interests were very largely guided by aesthetic appeal. And he hated the 19th century, and therefore knew very little about it even about his scientific literature. He was a really great expert in the Elizabethan age. I'm <laughs> absolutely astounded that you say that John Maynard Keynes really didn't know the economic literature. Oh, he had sure very little. Gone very little. Uh, even within the English tradition, he did know very little of the great monetary writers of the 19th century. He would know nothing about Henry Thornton. He would know he knew a little about Ricardo, of course, the famous things, but uh, he could have found any number of antecedents of his inflationary ideas in the 1820s and 1830s, and when I told him about it, it was all new to him. How did he react? Was he sheepish? Was oh, he? no, not in the least. Uh, 
He was much too self-assured and amused, uh, uh, convinced that uh, what other people could have said about the subject was not frightfully important. When uh, at the end, well, not in the end, it was a period just after he'd written the general theory, where he was so convinced he had redone the whole science that he was rather contemptuous of anything which had been done before. And did he maintain that confidence to the end? I can't say, because as I said before, we'd almost stopped talking economics. Uh, great many other subjects, uh, his general history of ideas and so on, we were interested. And, you know, I, I don't want you to uh, get the impression that I underestimated him as a brain. He was one of the most intelligent and most original thinkers I have known. But economics was just a sideline for him. I mean, he had an amazing memory. He was extraordinarily widely read. But economics was not really his main interest. His own economics was he was convinced he could recreate the subject. And he rather had contempt for most of the other economists. Does this tie in with your two kinds of minds? You wrote an encounter some years ago. Uh, piece that well, curiously enough, I would say Keynes was rather my type of mind, not, uh, not the other. He certainly could not have been described as a master of his subject, which I yes, yes, described yes. the other time. He was an intuitive thinker with a very wide knowledge in many fields, who had never felt that uh, economics was weighty enough to. He just took it for granted that. Marshall's textbook contained everything one need to know about the subject. There was a certain arrogance of Cambridge economics about me, and they thought it was the center of the world. And if you have learned Cambridge economics, there was yes. nothing else worth learning. What was their reaction to the road to serfdom? Well, Keynes, of course, took it extraordinarily kindly. He wrote a letter to me, a very remarkable letter to me, but he, I think, was the only one in Cambridge who took that. I think shows very clearly the difference between him and his doctrinaire pupils. His pupils were really all socialists, more or less, and Keynes was not. What or was he? <laughs> How would you describe him politically? I think there the American usage of the term liberal is fairly right fairly close to what he was. He wanted a controlled capitalism. Yes. And he thought that he could control it. Oh, yes. Or yes. at least advise those in power. Is I it true that he said, I am no longer a Keynesian? I haven't heard him say so. It's quite likely. But uh, after all the Keynesianism spread only just about the time of his death. You mustn't forget he died as early as 46, mm -hmm. just as the thing became generally accepted. In fact, uh, I sometimes say it, his death made him a saint, mm -hmm. whose uh, word was not to be criticized. Mm -hmm. If Keynes had lived, he would greatly have modified his own ideas, as he always was changing opinion. He would never have stuck to this particular set of beliefs. And he could argue with him. Uh, I mean, uh, since we're speaking about him, 
curious enough, the two persons I found most interesting to talk to for an evening were Keynes and Schumpeter, yes. two economists who were the best conversationalists and the most widely educated people in general terms I knew. With the difference that Schumpeter knew the history of economics intimately and Keynes did not. Had Keynes read Schumpeter? I would assume yes, but he wasn't reading much contemporary economics either. He probably had an idea, probably had, yes, I, I'm sure he is, well, I'm not only sure, I have seen them together. Mm -hmm. So I know he knew Schumpeter, and, uh, but I doubt whether he has uh, carefully studied any of Schumpeter's. Schumpeter's uh, book, which we mentioned before, Capitalism, came out in wartime when he yes. was much too busy to read anything of the kind. And Schumpeter's earlier works, I would suspect Keynes had read the brochure Schumpeter wrote on money because that was in his immediate field, but probably nothing else. I'm interested in your earlier comment about the fact that here is a man of immense intelligence, uh. great imagination, wide learning and so on, and yet was not an economist. And I'm not clear whether you mean he didn't have the kind of mind that excels in economics, just as mathematics, say, you can find people who are brilliant but who, given mathematics, are just hopeless. But do you mean he didn't have the kind of mind that makes for first-rate oh, yes. economists? Oh, he had. I mean, if he had given his whole mind to economics, he could have become a master of economics, of the existing body. But there were certain parts of economic theory which, had, which he had never been interested in. He had never thought about the theory of capital. He was very shaky even on the theory of international trade. He was well informed on contemporary monetary theory, but even there he did not, not know such things as Henry Thornton or Wicksell. And of course his great effect was he didn't read any foreign language except French. The whole German literature was inaccessible to him. He did, curious enough, review Mises' book on money, mm -hmm. but uh, later admitting that in German he could only understand what he knew already. So what he had known before he read the book. <laughs> How would you distinguish the streams that economics took in Austria and Sweden and England during your time? Well, in England, unfortunately, Sweden and Austria were moving on parallel lines. And if Jevons had lived, or his extraordinarily brilliant pupil, Wicksteed, had had more influence, the development was in the same direction. But uh, Marshall established almost a monopoly. Uh, and by the time I came to England, with the exception of the London School of Economics, where Edwin Cannon had created a different position, and Robbins was one of the few economists who knew the literature of the world, who drew on everything, England was dominated by Marshallian thinking. And this idea that if you knew Marshall, there's nothing else worth reading, was very widespread. Now, what happened when you came to the University of Chicago? How did you find that? Well, I was in Chicago not in the economics department, I was in the Committee on Social Thought. 
And I greatly welcomed this because I had become a little tired of a purely economic atmosphere like the School of Economics. I wanted to branch out and to be offered a position to be concerned with any borderline subject in the social science was just what I wanted. But uh, there were two people, well, uh, when I came to Chicago, Jacques Weiner had already left, but yes. I had known him before there, and it was his influence as much as Frank Knight's influence. So on the whole, I found there this very sympathetic group of uh, Milton Friedman and uh, soon George Stigler. So I was with part of the department on very good terms, but it was numerically, it was the econometricians who dominated them. The Carl's Commission was then yes. situated in Chicago, so the predominant group of Chicago economists had really very little in common. It's this Frank Knight and his group who were the people with whom I got along well. Frank Knight was a remarkable person, yes. and he was at heart an anarchist. <laughs> his, his contempt for all forms of government or the intelligence or the capacity of people to manage things was such that he seemed to me to end up as a kind of a philosophical anarchist. Yes, of course, I knew no person more difficult to describe and who was capable of taking the most unexpected positions on almost anything. But he was extraordinarily stimulating even conversation and his influence was wholly beneficial. And it's hardly an exaggeration to say that all the leading economic theorists in this country above the age of 50 or even 45 come out of Frank Knight tradition, even more than the Harvard. Earlier it was the Taussig tradition in Harvard. Harvard yes. But in that generation, which is slightly younger than myself, I think nearly all the first-class economists at one time or another have been pupils of, uh, pupils of Frank Nash. And yet, as I remember, he only wrote one book, what, Risk, Uncertainty and Profit. Yes, all the other collections book. of essays. Yes. Did you know that he once gave a lecture entitled Why I Am a Communist? I've heard that, yes. I <laughs> it was one of the most hilarious experiences I had because we couldn't believe our eyes uh, or ears when uh, we heard this. And what it came down to was the fact that the country was going to ruin so fast mm -hmm. and that the growth of governmental power was so great and the uh, veneration of people for politicians and the New Deal that only a strong communist threat could awaken the American <laughs> people to the need for change and the growth of a conservative movement. I've heard him later take a very similar position again, then to my complete surprise, and was that occasion that I was told about the earlier lecture. But uh, he was completely unpredictable what position he would take. <laughs> I will tell you one amusing episode about Frank Knight. When I had called that first meeting on Mont Pelerin, which led to the formation of the Mont Pelerin Society, I had already had the idea we might turn this into a permanent society, and I proposed it should be called the Acton Tocqueville Society. The two figures seemed most representative. Frank Knight, what up the greatest indignation, 
you can't call a liberal movement after two Catholics. Oh, <laughs> and he completely defeated him. He made it impossible. How interesting. As a single person, he absolutely obstructed the idea of using these two names yes. merely because they were Roman Catholics. Well, he was a Midwesterner and he had a kind of a dry and original way of thinking. Uh. You knew Viner. Oh, yes, I knew him quite well. Isn't it interesting to you that Viner wrote three papers, I believe, in which he demolished the then current theory that wars are caused by governments protecting private profits. Yes, yes. And he did this extraordinary piece yes, of research yes, yes. in England, France, Russia, and Germany yes, yes. on the origins of the First World War, and in effect pointed out it was exactly the opposite. Hmm. How did that really a, a, a revolution in thinking and a breakthrough in research, why didn't that have a greater effect? I don't know, in general, Weiner, uh, who was one of the most knowledgeable persons and most sensible persons, has an extraordinarily little effect on the literature. And to my great regret, I'm told that the uh, manuscripts of three books on which he was working for his last years are not usable for some reason or other. He seems to have himself become a little uncertain. Incidentally, since you have read these essays of mine on two types of mind, I didn't mention in that essay, but the contrast between Knight and Weiner seemed to me an ideal yes. illustration of the case. Yes. I mean, Weiner was a perfect master of his subject, as great a master of the whole subject as anyone I know. And of course, uh, Knight was very much the, what I called the muddle hand. <laughs> Well, from the uh, way you describe Frank Knight, he was a kind of hick John Maynard Keynes. That is a kind of a Midwestern uh, rover. Uh, yes, yes. He uh, had a remarkable founding or basis in philosophy, for example. Uh, but he surprised you. He would always come up. I studied under all of the people we've been talking about. I was lucky enough for that. He would always surprise you by coming up with a quotation from some very obscure philosopher of the Middle Ages about which he knew a great deal. But you know, he also knew the history of economics very well. He knew exactly, in that respect, he was quite unlike Keynes. I mean, you could hardly mention an ancient or 19th century economist and Knight wouldn't know all about it. But it's not in the sense that he had made traditional theory his own that he automatically gave the official reply to any subject. I mean, there were some people who had no reason to think because they had the answer ready on everything from the literature they had read. Frank Knight was one of the people who had to think through everything before he or at least to form a You mean think idea. anew? Think anew, yes. That is an interesting comment. It gave him this quality that endeared him to students yeah. of not answering off the cuff, or you know, if you press the button. On the contrary, he took students very seriously. He would get annoyed, he would argue, he would show his discontent, and then he would suddenly go into, but don't you realize the theological implications when you were talking about the Federal Reserve Bank or something? I don't know how early that was, when I knew him in the 50s, of course, he was preoccupied with religion, with all his 
fundamentally atheistic in the anti-religious attitude, his greatest interest was religion. He was agnostic, I would say, not an atheist. Yes. I mean, he was obviously a man who would refuse to take mm. as firm a position as saying, I know or there is no God, quite on the contrary. But it was also, just as his anarchism mm -hmm. came out, unlike Weiner, Weiner was all of a piece. Oh, yes. And yes. he was enormously homogeneous very and wide ranging in his true. thought. Uh, I sometimes had, uh, was driven once in a similar discussion about the two men. I described both as wise. And then I found I was using wise in altogether different senses in describing the one and the other. Uh, I find it very difficult to define it, but. Uh, I would say that, in a sense, Frank Knight was a more profound but much less systematic thinker, while uh, Weiner had a rounded system where he attempted to reconcile everything with everything else. Weiner could have written a very good textbook. Yes. Yes. Incidentally, the first four chapters of uh, Risk, Uncertainty, Profits, which of course Knight did when he was very young, or relatively young, was at that time the best summary of the current state of theory available anywhere. Uh, Robbins, when I came to London, was giving his students the first chapter of Risk, Uncertainty and Profits as an introduction into economic theory. It was then the best one which was available. Did you find the intellectual atmosphere at the University of Chicago wider, so to speak, than the London School of Economics. Well, there were interdisciplinary contacts. I mean, what I enjoyed in Chicago was returning into a general university atmosphere from the narrow atmosphere of a school devoted exclusively to social sciences. I mean, the faculty club, the quadrant club in Chicago was a great attraction. Yes. You could sit with the historians on one day and with the physicists another day yes. and with the biologists on the third. In fact, I still know no other university where there is so much contact between the different subjects as in the University of Chicago. Or as much contact between the undergraduate student and the faculty. This is yes, remarkable. That, that tradition, I hear, is still maintained. But I should have thought that you would have found yourself returning to a more congenial In, in a sense, yes. I. I had become a little tired of economics after 20 years in, at the London School of Economics. And, of course, economics drove me into the examination of political problems. I had already come to the conclusion that with our present political constitution, you could not expect governments to pursue a sensible economic policy. They were forced into something else, and that has occupied me ever since. Can you give me an example of why this didn't occur to you sooner? I mean, let me, let me put it this way. The, the constant argument, whether it's on a very high level or just a journalistic level, is the, the, the constant argument between the economist and, say, the sociologist, the economist and the political scientist, who say, you're not dealing with the model in the abstract. Mm. You can't say, well, that's a political problem, and therefore I have nothing to say about it. So surely you ran into the interferences with economics because of, you started, we started out early when you were talking about the way in which you were raised in a family, which I thought was a very vivid way of pointing out 
what is ultimately going to be a problem intellectually when you deal with what is called the real world. There is a real world. I think I was just taken in by the theoretical picture of what democracy was and that ultimately we had to put up with many miscarriages so long as we were governed by the predominant opinion of the majority. It's only when I became clear that there is no predominant opinion of the majority that the whole an artifact uh, achieved by paying off the interests of particular groups and this was inevitable with an omnipotent legislature that I dared to turn against the existing conception of democracy. And that took me a very long time. I mean, in fact, see, I've been mainly interested in borderline problems of economics and politics since, uh, well, since before the outbreak of war, 38-39, when I had planned this book on the, what I was going to call the abuse and decline of reason, of which the counter-revolution of science, which I wrote is the beginning of the uh, rationalist abuse of uh, constructivism, as I now call it. And conceptually, I had a big book on the decline of reason ready, and I used the material. I prepared a book then to write the route to serfdom as a pamphlet applied to contemporary affairs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really over the past 40 years that my main interest is much broader than technical economics, but certainly gradually that I've been able to bring the things really together. And they arose out of concern with the same problems, but to treat it as a coherent uh, system, I've only succeeded in, uh, I think, I'm just completing law, legislation and liberty. Did you find many of the political scientists responsive to what you were thinking and doing? Very few at the time. There was one good man, not very original, but sensible at London School of Economics, Smelly, if you remember him. There are few now developing. There's a man now here, an Italian, Sartori, who's seen more or less the same problems. But I think the general answer is no, I had very little real either contact with the political scientists or uh, sympathetic treatment of my ideas. But in the Committee on Social Thought, you certainly had sociologists like Ed Shields. I think he was then there, wasn't he? Yes, Ed Shields uh, was the only sociologist and was a very intelligent man. But he remained a puzzle to me to the end. I never quite... Uh, I mean, he's an extremely knowledgeable and well-informed man. You can talk with him on everything. But if he has a coherent conception of society, if he had to discover it, he probably has, but I may be unjust. But he was the only sociologist. We had philosophers, we had art historians, we had, of course, the chairman was a very considerable economic historian, John Neff. Oh, yes. Uh, an anthropologist, Redfield was one of our members. It was an extremely interesting crowd. There's a classical scholar, David Green, who was interested in the social ideas of the ancient Greeks. Oh, it was a fascinating group. And when, when I may say so, the first seminar I held in, uh, there 
was one of the great experiences of my life. I announced in Chicago a seminar on scientific method, and particular differences between the natural and the social sciences. And it attracted some of the most distinguished members of the faculty of Chicago. At Enrico Fermi and mm. Sewell Wright and a few people of that quality sitting in my seminar discussing the scientific method. And that was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. Do you find the newer, younger, so-called neoconservatives, whether Chicago or not, what do you think of them? Some of them have appeared in the Mont Pelerin Society. Oh, some of them. The economists among them are very good. Uh, I'm not so impressed by the people who think on these lines in political science and so on. But there are a few people now in philosophy, still little known people who seem to be very good. So I am rather hoping that this idea are now spreading. Of course, there are, I think the main thing is there are economists who are working outside their fields, like Jim Buchanan in, uh, uh, down there in South Carolina, and some of the people working in UCLA. I mean, uh, well, I said before that uh, you cannot be a good economist but, but except by being more than an economist. I think it's being recognized by more and more of the economists. This narrow specialization, particularly of the mathematical economists, uh, is, I believe, going out. Well, if you were to name five books, ten books, as you look back on your life, each of us does this. I was struck by the fact the other day, reading someone who happened to read Huckleberry Finn at the age of nine mm. and said it was an experience from which I never recovered. Mm. But if you look back over your own background, your own readings, which five or ten books would you say most influenced your thinking? Well, it's a tall order yes. to at a moment's notice. You're a tall man. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that both Menger's uh, Grundsätze and Mises on Socialism. Menger at once absorbed Mises is a book with which I struggled for years and years because I came to the conclusion that his conclusions were almost invariably right but wasn't always satisfied by his arguments. But uh, he had probably as great an influence on me than any person I knew. In, uh, on political ideas, I think the same is true of the two men I mentioned before, another connection, Tocqueville and Lord Acton. Yeah. Do you know how long to Tocqueville was in the United States? Oh, I, know, I did know. I used I've read the diary a few months. Unbelievable, uh, uh, yes. And, of course, <laughs> I will say, as a description of contemporary America, that great book is probably not a very good book. It's extraordinarily prophetic. He has seen tendencies which only but, uh, became really effective much later than he wrote. Let me go back to something you just said, which interested me very much, on uh, Ludwig von Mises, when you said his c you agreed with his conclusions, but not with the reasoning by which he came to them. Now, on what basis would you agree with the conclusions, if not by his reasoning? Well, let me put this in a direct answer. I think I can explain. Mises remained to the end a strict rationalist and utilitarian. 
and he would put his argument in the form that man had deliberately chosen intelligent institutions. I'm convinced that men have never been intelligent enough for that, but these institutions have evolved by a process of selection, rather similar to biological selection, and it was not our reason which helped us to build up a very effective system, but merely by trial and error. So I never could accept his, I would say, almost 18th century rationalism in his argument, nor his utilitarianism, because uh, in the original form, uh, if you say humans miss were utilitarians, they argued that the useful would be successful, not that people designed things because they knew they were useful. Yeah. It was only Bentham uh, who really turned it into a rationalist argument. And Mises was in that sense a successor of Bentham. He was a Benthamite utilitarian. And that utilitarianism I could never quite swallow. And I'm now, more or less, coming to the same conclusions by recognizing that uh, spontaneous growth, which led to the success, of, to the selection of the successful, leads to formations which look as if they had been intelligently designed. Of course, they never have been intelligently designed, nor being understood by the people who really practice the things. So Freud did influence you, in the sense that he ex exposed the enormous power of the not rational, or of the rationalizing mechanisms for the expression of self-interest in the in the uh, psychological sense. It may be. I'm certainly not aware of it. My reaction to Freud was always a negative one from the very beginning. I grew up in an atmosphere which was governed by a very great psychiatrist who was absolutely anti-Freudian, Wagner Jauerich, the man who invented the treatment of uh, syphilis by malaria and so on, a Nobel Prize man. And in Vienna, Freud was never... Well, of course, that leads to very complicated issues, the division of Viennese society, the Jewish society, the non-Jewish sure. society. I grew up in the non-Jewish society, was wholly opposed to Freudianism, so was prejudiced before, <coughs> and then was so irritated by the manner in which the psychoanalysts argued <coughs> their insistence that they have a theory which could not be refuted, that my attitude was really anti-Freudian from the beginning, but uh, to the extent that he drew my attention to certain problems, yes. I no, no doubt you're right. Yes. Uh, two comments on that. You know, Bertrand Russell's uh, famous statement that uh, it has been said, he didn't say Aristotle, but it has been said that man is a rational animal. Uh -huh. All my life I have been searching for evidence to support this. <laughs> Did you know Russell? Oh, I knew him, yes, I have never heard this. I knew him fairly well. Uh, in the final years of the war, he was back in Cambridge, while I was still in Cambridge. I saw him even before he once came to talk to my seminar. And then I was in correspondence with him about Wittgenstein. Oh, yes. Uh, he, in fact, gave me the whole set of letters which Wittgenstein had written to him, and I had started writing a biography on Wittgenstein around these letters when the literary executors stopped me, didn't give me permission to publish these letters before they had published them, and 
Meantime, I lost interest. I mean, I had a certain duty because I was the only, I'm still the only person who knew Wittgenstein both in Vienna and in, uh, in I London. I see. You know, he was a cousin of mine at Disney. No, I did not know. Oh, yes, a uh, second cousin of my mother, strictly speaking. And I did not hardly knew him in Vienna, but knew the family and the family yes. background and all that. And then was in contact with him in England. Yeah. Was he Jewish? Uh, three quarter. Uh, the common great-grandmother, uh, his and mine, was of a stern country family who married in this Jewish-Vienna connection. Oh, yes. And uh, three of his grandparents were Jewish. You got interested in Wittgenstein then very early, before you were working your, your material on uh, uh, philosophy. Yes. Yes, I came. <coughs> I read the Tractatus almost as soon as it appeared, uh, just because I. My knowledge about him is curiously indirect. His eldest sister, who was second cousin, was also a very close friend of my mother. So this elderly lady, who wasn't elderly then, was uh, talking frequently about her youngest brother, from whom uh, she was very fond. But he was just one of, uh, at that time, five Wittgenstein brothers, and later two, whom I didn't really know apart. I saw them as yes, distant relations. Yes. And I made his acquaintance. I wrote also an article about my recollection of Wittgenstein in Encounter. I met him in the Bahnhof, the st railway station of Bad Ischl, on, uh, in August 1918, as we were both ensigns in the artillery in uniform on the point of returning to the front. And the curious point, we traveled to Vienna together. It was the first time overnight that I really had a long conversation with him. But the point I have only since remembered since I wrote the essay, that of course, in the rucksack he carried, he carried already the manuscript of the Tractatus. Did he really? <coughs> no doubt, he went to the front, <coughs> he was on the way to the front, and he was captured by the Italian with the Tractatus on him. <coughs> Did Russell know any economics? No. Was he interested at all? No. He was very suspicious of it as a so Why? He didn't think it was a scientific subject. I once asked him this question, which will interest mm. you, because of the precision of his speech. I said, but just suppose that, much to all of our dismay, you left this earth and now found yourself standing before the throne. And there is the Lord in all of his radiance. <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> and he looked at me as though I was some idiot. <laughs> and said, well, I would say, sir, why didn't you give me better evidence? <laughs> Which is quite typical yeah, of yeah, oh yes. At Chicago you found uh, a kind of... Uh, fellowship, which included the physical scientists and the philosophers. You haven't mentioned any of the Chicago group of the philosophers. I don't know. Keyworth was the only one I was at all. The law school, did many of them come to your seminar? Uh, not much, really. I used to know cats fairly, fairly well. 
I used to know Levy, but uh, not well, really. Well, the one I knew fairly well was Einstein. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and, uh, Did Mortimer Adler play any part in this? No, he had left practically Chicago the year I arrived. <coughs> he was a influence in there. Everybody talked about him. Yes. But in fact, I believe I've never encountered him in person. Oh, really? Yes. Well, he has tried to do in a very different way, things on freedom and liberty, mm -hmm. but uh, with no no foot in the uh, economic or political structure, actually. He's much more legalistic and philosophical. No, I came across his influence rather via Hutchins. Yes. Hutchins I knew fairly well and uh, could see that Hutchins was relying on Adler in his ideas that made me read some of Adler's stuff. Uh, Dr. Hayek, I'm interested in your impressions of the empirical work that was being done by American economists. When you came here, it must have struck you rather forcibly. I mean, the stuff that was being done at the National Bureau, uh, stuff on business cycles, in which mm. I think you were interested at one time. Well, I got interested by my visit to the United States. See, when I came here as a young man, 23, I found that nothing had to learn in economic theory. Economic theory, I mean, uh, the American economic theorists had a great reputation at that time. But by the time I arrived, the few who were surviving were old men. And current teaching wasn't really interesting from a theoretical point of view. But uh, I was actually attached to New York University, but I gate crashed into Columbia. And I was working on, in the New York Public Library on the same table with Willard Thorpe and uh, other people from the National Bureau. So I was drawn into that circle and uh, learned a great deal about the descriptive statistical work. In fact, I owe part of my later careers to the fact that they learned the technique of time series analysis at that time and was the only person in Austria anyhow who knew it. And so I became director of the new Institute of Business Cycle Research. Uh, in, this was in Vienna? That was in Vienna, yes. And uh, I think as uh, information about current affairs is very valuable, the expectation that you will learn much for the explanation of events is largely deceptive. They, you cannot build a theory on the basis of statistical information because it's not aggregates and averages which operate upon each other, but individual action. And uh, you cannot use statistics to explain the extremely complex structures of society. So while I value statistics as an information about current events, I think its scientific value is rather much more limited than the American economists for the last 30 or 40 years have believed. You've left, I've left you at one point. If you say that the description of aggregates and the uses of statistics don't help you much to explain things, and if you say that they help with contemporary events, they cease to be contemporary very soon. Oh, yes. And you have built up a body of data now, how important are those data? Well, they 
give you an indication of what has probably happened in society during the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see any more optimistic possibility for the application of statistics? Not really in economics. Demography, yes. Uh, in all fields, we have to deal with true mass phenomena, but economics has not to deal with mass phenomena in a strict sense. You know where have a sufficient large number of events to apply the theory of probability. And proper statistics begins where you have to deal with probabilities. Well, all the sciences begin with that, yes. the amassing of what might seem to be formless data. Would you tell us a little more about why you think this is not true in economics? Do you really think that most of economics takes place in discrete, isolated events, decisions, judgments? Well, it leads very deep into methodological issues, but uh, the model of science is, uh, of course, the physical science in the original form are sciences of relatively simple phenomena where you can explain what you observe as functions of two or three variables only. All the traditional laws of mechanics can be formulated as functions of two or three variables. Now, there's another extreme field of mass phenomena proper, where we know you cannot get the information on the particular events, but can substitute probabilities for them. But there's unfortunately an intermediate event where you have to deal with complex phenomena which on the one hand are so complex that you cannot ascertain all the individual events, but are not sufficiently mass phenomena to be able to substitute uh, probabilities for information of the individual events. In that field, I'm afraid we are very limited. We can build up beautiful theories which would explain everything if we could fit in into the blanks of the formula the specific information but we never have all the specific information. Therefore, all we can explain is what I call, I like to use the term pattern prediction. You can predict what sort of pattern will form itself, but the specific uh, manifestation of it depends on the number of specific data which you can never all ascertain. Therefore, in that intermediate field, intermediate between the fields where you can ascertain all the data and the field where you can substitute uh, probabilities for the data, you are very limited in your predictive capacities. Which really leads to the fact that, as one of my students once told me, that nearly everything I say about the methodology of economics amounts to a limitation of the possible knowledge. It's true. I admit it. I have come to the conclusion that in that field, which someone has called the uh, organized complexity, as distinct from disorganized complexity. Warren Weaver. Yes, exactly. Warren Weaver spoke about this. Our capacity of prediction in a scientific sense is very seriously limited. We must put up with this. We can only understand the principle on which things operate, but these explanations of the principles, sometimes call them, 
do not enable us to make specific predictions of what will happen tomorrow. I was listening just to that uh, wireless here, where the people were speaking about the inevitable depression. Oh yes, I also know a depression will come, but within six months or three years, I haven't the slightest idea that I don't think anybody has. Yes, <laughs> life is a terminal disease. <laughs> but could you give me some examples of questions to which you, I mean, about economics, or in economics, mm. questions to which you would like answers, to which you do not have any satisfactory... Or well, any price movements of the future. Any price movements? Right. There's what? No, no way of predicting them. Well, it's exaggerating. There are instances where you can form a shrewd idea of what's likely to happen, but in that case, of course, the price movements which you anticipate, uh, which you expect, already anticipated in current prices, and are no longer true. And uh, the only interesting things are they unforeseen price movements, they, by definition, you cannot foresee. Uh, you were expressing your respect for Frank Knight, and once he said with great exasperation, the difference between the physical sciences and the social sciences is that in the physical sciences, they don't care what you say about them. Mm. But in the social sciences, you affect the subject matter by talking about it. Now, to the degree to which people in government think they can affect economic policy, mm. whether fine-tuning, to use mm. that old phrase, or large-scale changes, by either changes in money supply or attempts to influence credit or so on, do you feel that we know enough to be able to make any of that kind of prediction I'm sure not. plausible? I'm sure not. I don't think all this fine-tuning... Uh, well, you see, that really comes back to my basic approach to economics, that uh, economic mechanism is a process of adaptation to widely dispersed knowledge, which nobody can possess as a whole. And this process of adaptation to uh, knowledge which people currently acquire in the course of events must produce results which are unpredictable. When uh, the whole economic process is a process of adaptation to unforeseen changes. And when, in a sense, self-evident, because we weren't, they, we would arrange things once and for all and could just go on with our original plans. You mean if those who knew really knew That's and acted upon what they knew. Are you saying that the social sciences particularly economics as an example, are much more complicated than physical sciences? Uh, well, not the sciences. The subject is much more complicated, simply in the sense that any theory would have a larger number of data to insert than any physical theory. Uh, as, I started, as I said a moment ago, I mean, all the formula mechanics have only two or three variables mm -hmm. in them. Mm -hmm. Of course, in real life, you can use this to explain an extremely complex phenomena, 
but the underlying theories of a very simple character. With us, you can't have a theory of, com of perfect competition with at least having a few hundred participants. And you would have to inform about all their knowledge in order to arrive at a specific prediction. The very definition of our subject is that it's built up of a great many distinct units. And it wouldn't the subject of that order if it elements were not so numerous. You cannot form a theory of competition with only three elements in it. You can certainly have a theory. Well, it would be wrong, because it wouldn't be competition if there were three acting persons in it. Well, <laughs> just explain that. What about four? I uh, know. I don't think it's approach, but you have to have a number where it's impossible for any one of them to predict the action of the others. There must be a sufficient number of others for the one to be unable to predict. You say that's in the order of a hundred or hundreds or thousands yes. and so on. It's a, it's a startling theory, and I've not heard it quite put this way. But you know, the whole market is due to the fact that people are aiming at satisfying needs of people whom they do not know, right. and use for the purposes the facilities provided by people of whom they also have no information. It's a coordination of activities where the individual can, of necessity, only a small part of it. And any individual, I mean, not only the participating individual, even any outsider. The mistaken conception uh, comes from a very curious use of the term data. The economists speak about data, but I never make clear to whom these data are given. They are so unhappy about it, so occasionally they speak about even in a pleonasm of given data, just to reassure them that they are really given, but if you ask them to whom they are given, they have no answer. What do you mean revealed? <laughs> they, are, they are fictitiously assumed to be given to the explaining theorists. If the data were such and such, then this would follow. But, uh, of course, the data are not really given either to them or to any one other single person. They are the widely dispersed knowledge of hundreds of thousands of people, which can in no way be unified, so the data are never data. It's almost as if you were talking about uh, nuclear physics and the difficulty or impossibility about talking about an atom and how it's going to behave. Uh, yes, it's a, a different argument to see in uh, nuclear physics. Up to a point, you can substitute information about individual elements by probability calculations. There, the numbers are big enough yeah. for the law of large numbers to operate. Yeah. In economics, they are not. They are too big to know them individually and not big enough to be described by probability yeah. calculations. Do you think that this is a permanent and unbreakable prison? Yes. I don't think we can ever get beyond that. Because earlier you had said something about the uh, the processes of proof and the fact that you couldn't prove anything. And I was reminded of the work about which I know very little, which I know you know a great deal about, of Goodell at uh, Princeton. Yes. On the terrible, to me, tragic, built-in trap that he has discovered in the uses of logic and in what you earlier had talked about as the uses of reason. I think that, you see, I became aware of all this, not by my work in economics, but I don't know whether you knew that I once wrote a book on psychology. No, I did not. Oh, in physiological psychology, a book called The Sense of the Order, 
in which I make an attempt to provide at least a schema for explaining how physiological processes can generate this enormous variety of qualities which our senses represent, called the sensory order, and it ends up with a proof that while we can give an explanation of the principle in which it operates, we can not possibly give an explanation of detail, because our brain is as it were an apparatus of classification, and every apparatus of classification must be more complex than what it classifies. Yes. So it can never classify itself. Yes. Yes. So it's impossible for a human brain to explain itself in detail. And this was called the sensory the order? The sensory order. Came out in 52, but there's an idea which I conceived as a student when I divided my time more or less between officially studying law and dividing it between economics and psychology. Well, here you're, you're talking here about the philosophy which has not engaged the uh, biochemists and the bioengineers. What was their response to this? Respectful but incomprehending. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they, they really did not believe it or didn't understand it or both? Well, the psychologists at that time particularly had a great prejudice against what they regard as a philosophical argument. Yes. And I begin the book by saying I have no new facts to present. All I'm trying to put order in the facts which you already know. And they were no longer interested. <laughs> I mean, one of the two of the great people at the time, like Boring, uh, were very respectful in the way they treated the book, but they had practically no influence till recently. Now they're beginning to discover it, incidentally, but after 30 years. I had no idea that you had cut into the field from uh. this direction at all. It taught me a great deal on the methodology of science, apart from the special subject. I mean, what I later wrote on the subjects of the theory of complex phenomena is equal as a product of my work on economics and my work on psychology. And you had not then been working in statistics? No, uh, although I've nearly all my life had a title of professor and econo of economics and statistics, I've never really done any <laughs> statistical work. Did you know I... I did do practice statistics as a chief of the Austrian Institute of Trade Cycle okay. Research. Yes. Uh, did you know Einstein at all? I've just seen him once. No, I didn't know him. The work that you started on business cycles, I assume, was not unlike the work later done by Kuznets and his group at uh, well, the again, Institute. See, it was uh, an abstract schema without much uh, empirical work. I had some very elementary data which were commonly accepted that in every boom there was an excessive development of the production of capital goods, much of it afterwards turned to be mistaken. And I didn't need much more facts for my purpose to develop a theory which fits this, which shows that other accepted data that a credit expansion allows temporarily investment to exceed current savings that would lead to this overdevelopment of capital good industries. And once you are no longer able to finance a further increase of investment by credit expansion, the thing must break down. It becomes more complicated uh, in uh, conditions when the credit expansion is no longer done 
for investment by private industry, but very largely by government, then you have to modify the argument, and our present booms and depressions are no longer explicable by my simple scheme. But the typical 19th and early 20th century the thing, I think, is still, uh, to me, adequately explained by my theory, but not adequately to the statisticians, because, again, all I can explain is that a certain pattern will appear. I cannot specify how the pattern will look in particular, because it would require much more information than anyone has. So I, st again, limit the possible achievement of economics to the explanation of a type of... One of my friends has explained it a purely algebraic theory. An algebraic uh, theory? Yes. It, see, you get an algebraic formula without the constants being put in. Uh, just as you have a formula for, say, a hyperbola, yeah. if you haven't got the constants, uh, then you don't yeah. know what the shape of the hyperbola is. All you know it's a hyperbola. Yeah. So I can say it will be a certain type of pattern, but what specific uh, quantitative dimensions will have, I cannot predict. Because of that, for that, they would have to have more information than anybody actually has. And sooner or later, you'd reach the point where you couldn't do it no matter how much information you had. Yes. Is your theory. Yeah. Do you blame the layman or the working man or the amateur for wondering why in a society which has extolled the increased production of goods and services and the growth of the national product that it is now dangerous to have too rapid growth and we must now cut back to an annual growth of three and a half percent or four percent that we're going too fast or producing too much? I'm not at all surprised that the layman is greatly puzzled by this. <laughs> the actual explanation is very simple. See, we have suspended the self-steering mechanism of the market by feeding in false information, by producing money for the purpose. So it's quite easy to show how we have destroyed The money is more dangerous than the information, or is it the other way around? You say we feed false uh, information, uh, we feed false uh, uh, in, 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 in the form of money. Yeah. You know, if by adding money, injecting money at some point, to distort the price system artificially and leads you to do things which if the price system were really uh, inherently determined, uh, it wouldn't happen. It's... Uh, no, it leads ultimately to another thing you probably haven't heard about is that I'm convinced we shall never have good money again so long as we leave it in the hands of government. Government has always uh, destroyed the monetary systems. It was tolerable so long as government was under the discipline of the gold standard, which prevented it from uh, doing too much harm. But now the gold standard has irrevocably been destroyed because, in part, I admit it depended on certain superstitions which you cannot sure. restore. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of getting good money again unless we take the monopoly of issuing money from government and hand it over to pri competitive mm. private industry. Well, we did have that in the United States. Not really. You see, they were all issuing dollars. And the essential point is that they must issue different monies under different names so that the people can choose between them. Different names. Well, we had different banks printing different, different money so that you built up a body of trust in one bank's paper as against another. It was one of the problems of the federal government, actually. Well, uh, to a very limited extent, 
Because on the whole, the masses of people took one dollar bill as equivalent to another dollar bill. And they must learn, they must have a current currency market in which they tell you which currencies are stable in terms of each other and which fluctuate. So that they will leave any money which is unstable and flock to the one which is yes. stable. Do you think there's any chance of that ever being adopted? Or uh, will we be driven to adopt it? Ever, yes. Not in my lifetime and probably not in the next 50 years. But the kind of money which we are having is going to get so much worse in the course of time. We have so many experiences of alternating inflation and price controls being clapped on in order to prevent inflation that people will ultimately despair it. And if anyone starts my system, I think it will spread very rapidly. But I won't live to see it. Yeah, but in, in terms of the next decade or so, you're predicting a chaotic, almost catastrophic alteration in people's assumptions about the value of money and the value of their government. Well, I'm afraid the worst thing which will happen is that uh, in a mistaken way of combating inflation, we will be driven with a completely controlled economy. When, since people believe inflation consists in the rise of prices and not an increase in the quantity of money, they will be fighting the rise of prices and continue to inflate at the same time. I mean, it'll be their way of keeping prices rising. And, you know, if there's anything worse than an open roof inflation, it's a repressed inflation. If there's more money, then you can buy for it, and all the prices are artificially fixed. Now, how that will ultimately end, I don't know, because, uh, as I always say, you Americans have one advantage. You're willing to change your opinions very rapidly on some subject. And if you get really disgusted with the money you have, you might as well try something completely different. But in the present state of opinion, I don't see any hope except alternating periods of inflation repressed by price controls, then the price controls being taken off and the inflation, which already has been going on, exploding again. People getting so alarmed about the exploding inflation to be clapping on new price controls. And that may go on for several uh, Have price cycles controls like ever worked except in one case, wartime? Have they ever been successfully administered? I think in the, in the I doubt even whether they have been successful in wartime. They have... Uh, disguised from the people some of the unpleasant effects and perhaps have been politically effective in by preventing discontent. But I don't think they've uh, made the economic system more efficient and certainly for the pursuit of war, the functioning price system would have been more effective than price controls. Even in wartime? Even in wartime. But would the, again, the, the business of the sense of inequity comes in and the political consequences that have to be dealt with by the politician, by the political leader, by the legislator. This is a terrible problem about oh, human yes. behavior. It's a terrible problem. You can uh, preserve the existing economic system only by making concessions to the people, which will ultimately <laughs> destroy the same system. Well, the numbers, too. Yeah. There were a great, great many, even Shaw, who was very silly about many things. Oh, very silly, yes. But he got off a very acute line about democracy when he said, when you rob Peter to pay Paul, remember how few Peters there are and how many Pauls. Mm. And he went on from that mm. to hint at the growing unwieldiness and difficulty of mass suffrage 
in a society where there's a limited amount of goods to be parceled out. See, it's all the destruction of the meaning of words. Everybody talks as if social justice had a meaning. Everybody is convinced it has a meaning. When they begin to investigate what it means, you find it means precisely nothing. No, but the people who think they know what it means, which sure they, they, they all believe it will benefit the particular causes in which they are concerned. Yeah. Or that things would be more, quote, fair. The, the whole concept of what is fair or what is just. Yes, but uh, it's not facts which are fair, it's human action which is fair or just. And to apply the concept of justice, which is an attribute of human action, to a state of affairs which has not been deliberately brought about by anybody, is just nonsense. Yes, but can people accept that? They don't, they don't seem to be willing to accept that. And under the training of voting, mass education and so on, we are raised on the assumption that problems can be solved, that we can solve them, we can solve them fairly. The See, that brings us back to the thing we were discussing much earlier. There's revolt against this. It's an affair of the last 150 years. Uh, in the beginning of the, even the 19th century, people accepted it all as a matter of course. Uh, an economic crisis, a loss of a job, a loss of a business, was as, ma as much an act of God as a flood yes. or something else. It's... Uh, certain developments of thinking which happened since which made people so completely dissatisfied with it. On the one hand, that they are no longer willing to accept certain ethical or moral traditions. On the other hand, that they have been explicitly told, why should we obey any rules of conduct, the usefulness or reasonable, which cannot be demonstrated to us. And whether a man can be made to behave decently, I would even say, yes. if he, so long as he insists that the rules of decency must be explained to him, I'm very doubtful. It may not be possible. Well, in a sense, you're also talking about what has happened in the 1960s when precisely those kinds mm -hmm. of arguments were involved. Mm -hmm. And the things that seem to be to be, me to be most conspicuous First, they weren't afraid of anything. That is, the young people on the campuses and mm. elsewhere were not afraid. They were not afraid of the police, they were not afraid of their parents, they weren't afraid of the teachers. And this was something rather new, at least to me. It was an entirely new phenomenon. We had never stopped to think of whether we were afraid or not, but there was an order of respect and an order of obedience, mm. even in the rather free society of the west side of Chicago. Well, of course, my explanation to this is the effect of the teaching of the generation of teachers who taught in the 40s, which we saw happen in the 20s, which essentially told the young people uh, when all the traditional morals are bunk. In the 20s? Uh, in the 40s, no. The height of the influence of... Uh, modern psychoanalysis of uneducation was in the 40s and 50s, and it was in the 60s that we got the products of that education. Yes, yes. It was more, I think, the vulgarization of psychoanalysis, I want to put in a word of defense there, and the silliness of the people who were the practitioners or the counselors. Uh, I doubt very much that Freud would ever have approved of this. 
because certainly his work is not lacking in severe moral strictures. Uh, Freud himself, probably not. Certainly not Jung, but nearly all the next generation of uh, well-known psychoanalysts were working in that direction. And if you take people like Eric Fromm and such people, or that uh, man who became the first secretary of the International Health Service, what uh, that uh, Canadian psychoanalyst. Oh, yes, 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 yes. His name will come. World Health Organization. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. You, you were talking about the 40s, and I was reminded that I think it's von Mises who had this extraordinary description of Germany before the First World War, with bands of young people, with the equivalent of guitars and mandolins roaming the countryside oh, yes, and so uh, on. Perfectly remarkable the Wander, passage. The Wandervögel. The Wandervögel and all that they left, he said, not a single work of art, not a single poem, nothing but wrecked lives and dope. Yeah. Were you familiar with that at all? Oh, I saw it happen. It was still quite active immediately after the war. I think it's high. It reached the highest point in the early 20s, actually, after the war. In fact, I saw it happen when my youngest brother was for a time drawn into that circle. But they were still not barbarians yet. It was rather a return to nature. Their main enjoyment was mm. going out for walks in nature and living a primitive life. But it was not yet an outright revolt against civilization, as it later became. Let me get back as our time draws to a close. If we can't get from the economists any reasonably precise guidelines, I say precise simply in, in the earlier sense we were talking about controls and so on. To whom do the leaders of the society turn for judgment? You've presented the politician, and I'm using the politician not in a negative sense, because I think it's an honorable uh -huh. profession, and one which requires great skill. The mediators, if you want, the ones who have to make the recommendations to the Congress, if they can't get it from the economists on economic problems, and the core of the problems we've been talking about are surely economic, I think you have to. Where do they get their advice? You can tell the people that our present constitutional order forces politicians to do things which are very stupid, which they know are very stupid. I am not personally inclined to blame the politicians. I rather blame institutions which we have created which force the politicians to behave not only irrationally, I would say almost dishonestly, but they have no choice. So long as they have to buy support by all number of small groups by giving them special privileges, yes. nothing but the present system can emerge. And uh, my present aim is really to prevent this, the recognition of this, uh, turning into a complete disgust with democracy in any form, which is a great danger in my opinion, but making clear to the people that it's what I call unlimited democracy, which is a danger, where so what kind of unlimited, yes. <coughs> where coercion is not limited to the application of uniform rules, 
but you can take any specific coercive measures if it seems to serve a good purpose. And any anybody which helps a politician being elected is by definition a good purpose. Yes. I think people can be made to recognize this and restore general limitations on the governmental powers, but there will be a very slow process. And I rather fear that uh, before we can achieve something of this, we will get something like what Tolman has called totalitarian democracy, an elective dictatorship, which are practically unlimited powers. And then it will depend from country to country whether they like or unlike is the kind of person who gives them power. After all, they have been good dictators in the past, very unlikely that they will ever arise. But uh, there may be one or two experiments in a dictator restoring freedom, individual freedom, I can't hardly think of a program that will be harder to sell to the American people. I'm using sell in the sense of persuade. How can a dictatorship be good? Oh, it will never be called a dictatorship. It will be a situation, it may be a one-party system. Maybe a kindly system. A kindly system, the one-party system. Yes. Uh, Dictator says, I have 90% support amongst the people. That's already been said by several <laughs> recent <laughs> occupants of the White House. Yes. Yeah. And it raises a terribly interesting and difficult question. At one point during the worst days of the Vietnam War, when President Johnson suddenly realized that he had been misled, that he had been given a totally false picture, and that he really faced a different, terrible kind of problem. There was a cabinet meeting, and one member of the cabinet said, if we only knew what the American people want us to do. And Johnson looked up and said, and let us suppose that we did know what the American people wanted us to do. Would that necessarily be the right thing for us to do? It's an extraordinary insight mm -hmm. into the problem of the statesman yeah. who is elected, who feels that responsibility, and yet has a degree of power that, as you have mm -hmm. pointed out yeah. today, exceeds anything we've ever known in the United States. Yeah. How do you dismantle the bureaucracy? You remember Lenin, who certainly didn't hesitate to use power and chop mm -hmm. off heads and send people into exile mm -hmm. and terrible things without the slightest mercy, and without anything to stop him, complained after three years. He said, we've been carrying on a fight against bureaucracy, and there are 24,000 more bureaucrats in Moscow now than when I began. <laughs> and he could not understand why he couldn't get rid of the bureaucracy. Uh, uh, Do you have any ideas on that? I think, again, it comes ultimately to the power to the question of restraining the power of the so-called legislature, which is now omnipotent. And there's, no see, there's a long intellectual tradition which has led to this, the whole idea of positivism, that the only possible limitation of power is the legislature. When I you say positivism, are you talking about the legal philosophical? Po legal positivism. Would you explain that for a minute? Well, that all 
law derives from the will of an ultimate legislature, which is omnipotent. Well, of course, uh, law in the sense of rules of private conduct is a process supported by evolution and the sense of justice on the people, which would put very definite limits. And by no means inevitable that you give some supreme authority unlimited powers. Positivism insists on the necessity of some supreme authority which determines now the authority can consist in the agreement of the people to form a union for certain purposes, not for others, in which case, of course, the power is automatically limited, and that power might well limit all coercive activity to the enforcement of certain uniform rules, which would exclude yeah. all granting of privileges yeah. to some and not to others. Well, in other words, if you could rewrite the drama or the story of the United States and it made certain changes in the Constitution, we could so, have avoided many of the yes, problems I'm, now. Of course, we didn't know. But oh, some of the you said before how great men, really, the writers of the American Constitution were. They were probably the wisest political scientists who oh, ever yes. lived. Yes. But I will give you just one illustration of how their intention has been completely misunderstood. Do you remember, I will test you, the contents of the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution? <laughs> no, don't test me at this hour. It's bad <laughs> enough in the morning. Go ahead. You well, I, 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 I've tried it with uh, American lawyers and yeah. even constitutional lawyers, and they first don't remember the text and then don't know what it means. Nothing in this Constitution is to uh, restrict the people, uh, the rights restrained, retained by the people. Yes. It has never been used. There, I believe, is a single decision which it is referred to, and the intention was, of course, that the rights of government should be limited to uh, enumerated by the Constitution. And that comes back to my earlier statement that it never occurred to them that there would be a problem with federal government mm -hmm. over the states. Yeah, it's partly the same thing. Yes. But it, it would be interesting to speculate how changes of this order made in this place and in this place would have prevented us from many of the I think if instead of a Bill of Rights enumerating particularly protected rights, you had had a single clause saying that government must never use coercion except in the enforcement of uniform rules equally applicable to all. It would not have needed the further Bill of Rights, and it would have kept government within the proper limits. It doesn't exclude government rendering services apart from this, but its coercive powers would be limited to the enforcement of uniform rules you equally applicable. You wouldn't have needed a First to Amendment? You wouldn't have needed a... Well, the First Amendment is very limited to specific field. Sure. When uh, I would begin my amendment was the same words as for Congress must make no law, yeah. but not restricting particular things, I but see. quite generally coercing people except to obey uniform rules equally applicable to all. That includes all the existing protected rights. But suppose rights. the uniform rules applicable to all were bad, illegal, unconstitutional, unjust. They were equal. But, to all. I mean, you've got to have yes. some prior code or test, don't you? It's hardly conceivable that, uh, well, uh, it has to, uh, 
the definition has to be much more complex than I gave you. It has to be rules applicable to an unknown number of future instances referring to the relation of persons to other persons so as to exclude internal affairs yes. and freedom of yes. thought and so on. But there has been in the 19th century a development of the concept of law which defined what the legal philosophers then called law in the material sense as distinguished from law in the purely formal sense which gives practically all the required characteristics of a law in this sense and reproduces, I am convinced, essentially the conception in which law was being used in the 18th century. I mean that law is no longer something which has a meaning of its own and the legislator is confined to giving laws in this sense, but that we all that we derive the word law from legislature rather than the yes, other way yes, around yes, is a relatively new development. Well, again, to come back to the uh, religious foundations of a society, uh, you of course remember that Plato wrestled with the idea and said that in a democracy or a perfectly, he had to have one royal lie. And of course, he lived in a pagan and a polytheistic society, and I often wondered what he meant by that one royal lie, because it must have meant something like the divine right of the king. Yeah, yeah. Someone has to carry that, or some institution. Now, the curious thing about the founding fathers, the most marvelous thing about them, was they all agreed on providence. Mm -hmm. So it was possible for the religious, for the Episcopalians, for the non-believers to agree and in this vague thing called deism. Mm. Yeah. But it was a tremendous cement. Oh, yes. And as that cement erodes, consequences follow for which there seemed to be no substitute. I'm wondering whether when you talk about the rule of law, mm -hmm. you aren't in a sense talking in that, in that tradition. Can you have a functioning society without some higher dedication, fear, faith? I believe yes. In fact, uh, no, in my persuasion, uh, the advanced Greek society, the Greek democracy, were essentially irreligious for practical sure. purposes. And there you had a common political or moral creed, which perhaps the Stoics had developed in the most high form, which was very generally accepted. I don't think you need... I think the, that brings us back to something which we discussed very much earlier. There is still this strong innate needs to know that one serves common concrete purposes with one's fellows. Now this clearly is a thing which in a really great society is inachievable. You cannot really know. And uh, whether people can learn this, this is still part of the emancipation from the feelings of the small face-to-face -face group, which we have not yet achieved but which we must achieve if we were to maintain a great society of free men. It may be that our first attempt will break down. Has the growth of anthropology, with the emphasis on kind of a cultural relativism and uh, an indifference, as it were, to the, quote, innate superiority or not of one customers against another, 
Has that done a great deal to erode one's confidence in whatever moral order? I would say it's rather a reflection of a more general public belief, a general belief. I mean, this idea of the anthropologists now frequently teach that every culture is as good as yeah. any other. Well, good for what? If you want to live in small tribal groups, uh, some other thing would be good. But if you want not only to have a world society, but to maintain the present population of the world, you have no choice. Uh, if, uh, if that is your ultimate aim, just to assure to the people who live a future existence and continuance, I think you must create, a, uh, maintain essentially a market society. If we now destroy the market society, then two-thirds of the present population of the world will be destined to die. <laughs>